Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Ransville PR, and this is our We Built This City podcast. This podcast is made of the conversations of the Mancunians born, bred and adopted that put the heart into modern Manchester. We're a city that literally rebuilt itself after the IRA bomb exploded in Manchester city centre in 1996. While the city continues to grow brick by brick, we know that what makes it great are the people that come together day in and day out, even if it is via video call right now. One of these people is today's guest, Mayor of Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham. There were plenty of born and bred Manx who said no way to a scouser being Mayor of Manchester, but it seems we've adopted him and he's one of us now. I will just call things as I see it. No one is telling me what to say. Nobody's telling me what to do. I will just call it as to whether or not this is right for Greater Manchester and, and the people of Greater Manchester. He's fought for devolution and he's now helping us to build back better. And he thinks Manchester is, in his own words, the best place ever. Oh, and there's something extra special at the end of this podcast to mark the three-year anniversary of the Manchester Arena attack. So please listen to the end. Hi, Andy, and welcome to this episode of We Built the City. Thanks for coming along today to talk to me. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's an honour. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, you must be the busiest man. You are anyway the busiest man, I know, but God knows what your schedule looks like at the moment, helping in the recovery of Manchester. But in the meantime, there's something I've been wanting to ask you since earlier this year, and that is that you took to the mic and sang the song Dirty Old Town at your 50th birthday party at Fairfield Social Club in February. So why is a song about a Salford so important to a Scouser? <laughs> it's a good start. Um, a family song. My mum and dad used to sing it at parties going back, you know, those Liverpool kind of parties where everyone had their party piece. Well, uh, that was the uh, that was the, the, the Burnham family one. Uh, but then when the Pogues came along, in the 80s i you know i got into the pogues so it kind of had a rebirth in the family through the pogues uh so it's just one of them drunken burnham family do things none none would be complete without a, a proper rendition of dirty old town so uh, yeah i'm afraid at least it doesn't it doesn't have any united connection in my family <laughs> it's united and salford city walkout isn't it now so it's very much it's and it's my my one of my favorite songs that being from salford yeah uh, it's very important in our family too actually so why did you want to be mayor of manchester well i was a greater manchester mp for 16 years and to be honest though i was born in liverpool i spent my youth in manchester um i'm not reinventing that just because it suits me now as a politician to kind of invent this history i was you know my First jobs were in uh, Manchester, junior reporter on the Middleton Guardian for a very short stint. I mean, I, I just was in and around the, the city all the way through the late 80s and the 90s. So, um, you know, if anything, that were, that's where my formative years were. And then I, I say I became a Greater Manchester MP, MP for Lee, uh, for all those years. And I tried all my life in Parliament to advocate for Greater Manchester and for the North. And that's, in the end my passion and I kind of realized I'd hit a bit of a dead end really in national politics. And when this opportunity came along, I thought, you know what, I, I think that is the job that would most uh, appeal to me, um, where I can just be myself, you know, not do any of the rubbish down there where you have to say things you don't believe in and vote ways you don't believe in. You can just do your own thing in this job. And that's what's so great about it. And it couldn't, it just couldn't be in a better place representing better people. 
I think I've heard, I think it was a podcast you did with Nick Robinson. And he said that you didn't feel that you could speak from the heart in London, but you, you can speak from the heart in Manchester. Do you, is that how you feel? I still feel like that. Yeah, it's really important for me to say this, you know. So I, I, I learned, you know, as, as a, a backbench MP, you know, about how things work down there. And the truth of the matter is, Parliament makes a fraud out of you. For the reason I just gave before, you know, you get told when you're a young MP, go, you know, say this in this interview, here's the lines you've got to use. Oh, ask this question in the House, you know, the whips will tell you to do that. Or vote this way, you've got to vote this way. Three-line whip, if you don't, that's it. And because of that, I don't think people realise that, you know, it, it kind of makes you do things before you've kind of, in some ways, understood about what that means. And, you know, I say it turns, it, it look, makes people appear a certain way when often you're not. And I struggled all the time down there with that kind of London crowd, you know, the way they were kind of operating and you try and be part of it, but then you don't feel part of it because you're not quite, you don't see the world in the same way as that they do. And as I say, I think nas national politics and parliaments makes people look fraudulent. And in the end, you've got to decide what you want really in politics. And I'd, I'd kind of swum in that kind of pond for too long and I felt it was kind of like not me anymore. And I really, I really had that sense in the 2015 Labour leadership election. I just thought, well, it's, it's time to do what I want to do in politics. And that's why, yeah, I mean, it's like properly coming home, properly being where you want to be, being with the people you want to be with. Um, and doing the things that matter. Uh, and that's why this job appeals to me so much. I heard you say that your mum taught you to speak as you find. So do you feel that you're able to do that as Mayor of Greater Manchester? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, people wouldn't have it any other way, though, would they? Because if you didn't do that, and if you were like trying to play, you know, the, the, the political game that goes on in Westminster, then people would just say, well, they don't want that. So, you know, I, I, I always try to operate that way in Lee and I can do the same now on a, on a much bigger stage, you know, and it's, um, it's refreshing to, to be honest. I just, I, 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 you know, I try and say that all the time in this job, you know, I will just call things as I see it. No one is telling me what to say. Nobody's telling me what to do. I will just call it as I see it as to whether or not this is right for Greater Manchester and, and the people of Greater Manchester. And if the government does the right thing, I'll say so. If they do the wrong thing, I'll say so. And the same applies to Labour. And it is quite a good place to be, really. And I think more politics should be conducted in this way, because if it was, it might be in higher esteem with the public. You got a lot of flack, didn't you, at the time from the Manx when you got elected or when you had the <laughs> the campaign? Did it ever unnerve you? You never gave Wayne Rooney all that flack when he came. So... <laughs> yeah, I did a bit. It, it, it was, a, it was, it was you know, 90%, 99% in, in good jest, actually, because um, I, I, I like to think that... Um, you know, Evertonians are more uh, more palatable. You know, we're the acceptable face of Merseyside football, aren't we? So I think I, <laughs> if I've been of the other persuasion, I don't think that they've had me here for five five <laughs> minutes. But no, I you know, I, I, to be honest with you, and I you know, I, I love the northwest, and I kind of find the two cities are not that different, to be honest. Um, and I always you know, for me, the royal family is like kind of my northwest in that. It's all mixed in together a bit, really, isn't it? Liverpool and Manchester mm. and uh, and everywhere in between. And I'm definitely somebody who grew up in the in-between. Yeah, I think aside from football, there's uh, there's so much more collaboration now between the two cities than even when I started my career. And the, obviously, you've just launched Build Back Better with Steve Rotherham. So there's a, there's much more of a kind of unification now, isn't it, between the cities? I think there always was uh, on a music uh, front. You know, I think um, people think of Tony Wilson as Mr Manchester, but... 
um, there's a famous quote about him that he said, you know, he, he loved Liverpool uh, too. And actually, my very first meeting with Tony was in 2001. I had just been elected uh, as the new MP for Lee. And I was summoned to a meeting at the Albert Dock uh, with the great Anthony Wilson, who'd, I think, just been presenting something for Granada. And he wanted to, he said he wanted to meet me. So I went along uh, to meet him. And the first thing he said to me was, you're campaigning for Everton to get a new ground, aren't you, uh, On close to the Albert Dock? I said, yeah. Well, you're wrong. It needs to be a music venue. And uh, sadly, as on many things in life, he was right, and it became the Echo <laughs> Arena. <laughs> uh, but hopefully Everton will now get a stadium further yeah, down exactly. the, uh, the Riverside. But uh, yeah, so um, he was somebody who was quite passionate uh, about uh, the Northwest, to be honest with you. I worked with him on Northwest Evolution later. And I think, you know, Tony was a man of of both cities in some ways. And yeah, I always was quite touched by the um, the presence of a lot of people from Liverpool at his funeral. I think they had something from Liverpool with love, didn't they? And that was um, something that I think spoke very much to Tony and what he was about. There's an underground, well, not so much underground, but there's the Scousers working in Manchester <laughs> organisation. <is that> the, <laughs> one of our most loved scousers in Manchester who's now moved to London Maria and our team she's in that so uh yeah so there's a lot a lot of scousers in Manchester you're losing me votes by the second there Lisa <laughs> it's called swim I think is what what it's called swim swim that's right scousers <laughs> working in Manchester that's um, the one <laughs> there are a surprisingly large amount uh, actually but um we all uh, contribute half of what Mr Rooney did then I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll be accepted eventually Absolutely. So you're committed to the revival of the North of England under the Northern Powerhouse. Where do you feel that you've made, well, together we've made the most headway so far? I think um, the North of England is higher up the political agenda than it has ever been in our uh, lifetimes. And I'm not saying I'm solely responsible for that, but I hope I've played a part in that. It finally feels to me that we've broken through in terms of people recognising that the political voice of the North and its importance. And, you know, that that is something that, um, you know, quite honestly, I'm not sure I ever thought I would see the idea that we'd have a general election that was that was fought very much around the, the North. So I think the real progress has been made. It's just our luck, though, isn't it? When we're just getting somewhere, uh, then we have another crisis that, that, that takes us in a, in a different direction. But to be honest with you, I think... What's happening now should mean that levelling up doesn't just return once we're through this, but returns with a vengeance because uh, it's the poorer communities that are being hit hardest by the health crisis and they will then be hit hardest by the economic crisis that comes afterwards. And if you look at it, the Northwest is absolutely being hit hardest by this virus because of the concentration of deprivation that we have across both city regions, but also up into Lancashire. Um, you know, that that's why the virus has got such a hold here. And so do you think we'll be set back significantly? I mean, what, what are the plans around Build Back Better that you think will have the most impact in the next kind of months and years, I suppose? Well, we will be set back a little, won't we? But like everywhere will be. But I kind of see it more positively in that I think it is an opportunity for us to bring through that unique uh, Greater Manchester perspective um, that is very much, I think, in tune with the times. You know, it always has been the case, if you go down, not just through the decades, through the centuries, that the city has stood for 
social progress alongside economic progress. I mean, that is that that is the heart of it, as far as I can see. More so than Liverpool, more so than other cities. You know, Manchester absolutely embodies an entrepreneurial spirit, the free trade hall, and all of that. But also, the trade union movement, uh, Peterloo, and, and that as well. And it's that is such a powerful combination. And I I think that. Uh, speaks very much to the mood of the times that we're living in. People are looking at the world in this crisis moment through new eyes, and they can see that while many middle-class people are sitting at home having uh, Zoom conferences, there's a lot of other people out there still running the essential services that we all depend upon, and they also happen to be the lowest-paid people in society on the least secure employment contracts, and it isn't right. It really isn't right. And, you know, if anywhere is uh, well-placed to lead Build Back Better, then surely it's Manchester and Greater Manchester. And um, so I think this is, a, you know, in, in, in adversity, going to be a, a moment when we can really, you know, speak to the values of, of where people are right now. And we are a brilliant city in adversity, aren't we? We've seen that lots of times over. I actually um, signed up to see how I could get involved as a business. And we do things, we collaborate, don't we, as a city? So you see people from lots of different backgrounds who will pull together in, in this situation. So how can a business get involved to help rebuild the city? So Build Back Better isn't just a sort of political call on, on the government. It's much broader than that. And it is about all individuals asking themselves the question, well, how can I build back better from where we are. It's about businesses asking that that same question or organisations like councils, because the truth is we're going to need people to change the way things are done just to be able to manage the recovery. So if you take a simple example uh, like public transport, we won't be able to run the trams or the buses at anything like normal capacity for you know months, um, possibly into years, I don't know. So therefore... We're going to have to ask businesses to think differently about the working day and the number of people who are coming into the city centre at any given uh, time. So that is a challenge on one on the one hand, but it's also an opportunity on the other, isn't it? Because it's an opportunity to get rid of that kind of terrible congestion that, that you know really damages all of our quality of life, doesn't it? You know, the, the, the GM working day is still a very traditional nine till five working day. And as a result of that, we get terrible congestion in that sort of uh, 7.30 to 9 a.m. period and then at 5 to 6.30. So this is an opportunity for businesses to say, right, OK, we're going to work with you to sort of reduce the number of people in the office, uh, stagger the start and end time of the working day. Oh, yeah, and that actually is good for people because it's more homeworking, offer more flexible working to those with kids or caring responsibilities. That's a simple example, Lisa, of how we could ask businesses to work with us to build back better because the end result of that might be less congestion, less pollution, more homeworking and you know, people having a better quality of life. I think there's some amazing things that we've kind of felt in the last couple of months that we've all reflected on that will change our working lives and, and I think make people a little bit kind, a little bit more understanding as well. I hope so. So here's a more challenging message maybe to businesses. You know, I think working on the working day is something we could we could do but you know i can't be the only one who gets a pang of guilt thinking about the life that people are leave, living if you are able to stay at home compared to people who have been out there 
you know, the, the statistic that really sticks in my head through this whole uh, crisis is one that came from Unison and a survey they did of care workers in the Northwest, um, 2,500 care workers, 80% of whom said that they feared they would not be paid if they needed to self-isolate. And the survey went on to say that because of that, people had stayed in work when they were symptomatic and had obviously contributed to the spread. Now, where, where have we got to as a society if people who look after other people's relatives, which is one of the highest callings I can imagine, are not paid enough to protect their own health and the health of those people they look after? You know, where have we got to if that is the value we're placing on, on their or the lack of value we're placing on their work. And I feel something really strongly, uh, Lisa, in the last, certainly the last 20 years, I think we've overvalued the work of people in the top half of organizations, and we've undervalued the work of those in the bottom half of organizations. And when I came in as mayor, I don't expect any great uh, plaudits for it, but I made this commitment to donate part of my salary. And I was trying to send a message that I think this, kind of culture of excessive pay higher up you go really has kind of needs to be changed i don't think if you've got organizations where there is a massive gap from the very people at the very bottom of that organization and those at the very top i don't think you've got a healthy organization because you've no sense of team or common cause in an organization like that but so many organizations and not just in the private sector by the way public sector organizations have, have got themselves into a position where there is massively high pay at the top and zero hours minimum wage at the bottom and it really isn't going to be healthy it doesn't build a productive economy uh, in my view and some people may find that message challenging but I i'm sorry i just think that's a that's something we've got to face up to and i think it's a readjustment now isn't it gary neville in the podcast a couple of weeks ago was saying that organizations have got responsibility now to like look after each other so upwards and downwards now and it's it's actually maybe coming together as a team and saying let's look after each other some we've got to make adjustments across the team and some of the senior management making some sacrifices in order to support you know the the younger or the, the lower paid people within the team who are as equally important well, i'm not i'm not just saying this to kind of you know crawl to him and sort of try and win Corey favor with him but i i've watched gary over the years and before i came into this role i i definitely you know took inspiration from some of the things that he did you know the, the efforts he tried to make around homelessness um uh, well various things that, that he's done you know i always thought that he really embodies for me what this place is all about you know getting on in life but, but giving back i mean that that for me is just basically in a nutshell how the place ticks really um and it doesn't like it if people just you know wants people to do both of those things doesn't it you know people want people to get on and be ambitious and you know make their way but at the same time recognize where you came from your wider responsibilities and that for me is is what what this is all about and so i try myself to sort of capture that spirit in what in what i do i'm pro business i want to support business uh, i want to build the entrepreneurial culture of the of the city and the city region but at the same time never in a a sort of me myself and i way and you know a kind of a london excessive city of london type way that's not us and um and i actually so heartened that it's it's not the businesses here either if i asked often if i ask people to help me with something they're there like a shot and that's what makes this a fantastic place to work we built this city exploring the purposeful relationships that grow a community 
You talk about homelessness and obviously massively committed to eradicating the need for us sleeping and there's been incredible progress on that. Will the progress continue, do you think, given the situation that we have with, with COVID and, and what measures did you take during this time to kind of, I know you have done a lot of work to make sure that people who were on the streets have been given a bed every night? Yeah, um, so we took an early decision to um, devote a lot of money to immediately bringing people inside and not just into shelters, into single room uh, provision in hotels and apartments. So since the um, lockdown began, we have uh, accommodated, I think it's last count, 1,300 plus people. And then we've had a massive fundraising effort organized by Tim Heatley, uh, who is chair of the uh, Greater Manchester Mayor's Charity, and that's very much focused on homelessness. And that's then providing the, the voluntary support to people while they're in those, in those locations. So, you know, I think there could be a legacy for homelessness here because of all of that. And I know that some people will be helped to make a break with the streets because of this period of time that they've been able to spend supported in that way. However, I can't sort of be too uh, rose tinted about this because other people have been made homeless by the lockdown. You know, people who had sofa surfing arrangements have seen those arrangements break down and that's brought people uh, new onto the streets. We've seen relationship breakdown, abusive relationships, violence that has led to people being out on the streets and sadly some of these um, unscrupulous landlords have still been evicting people so you know it's it, it yes we've made progress but there's also new challenges that have arisen Lisa but coming out of it you know a bed every night stays you know that that absolutely is my defining commitment as as mayor of Greater Manchester you know I don't think people here accept the idea of another fellow human being sleeping on the streets they don't and they tell me that regularly and nor do I by the way so you know, we will just press on with that and we will carry on until we have ended rough sleeping. And your support has been magnificent. You know, there's so many people I could reel off who've kind of rallied to that cause. And yeah, we've built a bit of a movement around it and it's not going away and it will it will carry on until the job is done. I think you're right. You've, you use the word movement uh, a lot about it. And there have been so many kind of high profile people, sports people, business people, but also just normal people whose consciousness has been raised completely and they just feel that there's such a will to get people off the streets and not have to see that in our city anymore when i have a bleak moment or a dark moment in this job and i've had a quite a few i'll be honest because there's been some incredible challenges really that have happened it's only three years i've been in the job and sometimes it it feels like you know we've had the famine we've had the you know the fires we've had the you know, what what you know the pestilence and the and so it's been tough at times, um, I'll be honest. But if ever I'm having a sort of a, a, a bleak moment, I, I did used to get in the habit of going on to the, uh, the Greater Manchester Mayor's charity page and, and look at some of the donations and the comments from the public. And you just, yeah, I mean, you know, kids who've done things that, you know, car washes and God knows what. And it's just like, oh, yeah, um, I'm, what, what, are you, what are you moping for? <laughs> You've got brilliant people out there who are, doing amazing things to support you and yeah fantastic i was going to ask you do you ever have a moment when you wake up in the morning you just think no not today (laughs) (laughs) um yeah but it it, it can't last unfortunately because the job is i'm afraid there is not a day that goes by where i have a complete break from the job you know i'm doing something every every day i'm not like it's just the job isn't it you know it's uh you know it's what you sign up for 
but uh, yeah, I've got, of course, I have those I have those days like uh, uh, like anybody. But. Somebody once said that your doppelganger's got a doppelganger. Turning <laughs> <laughs> up to the opening yeah. of an envelope is what you're saying there, Lisa, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I saw an article in the Manchester Evening News some time ago where they've actually tracked how many engagements you'd had but I think Carl Austin Bayern reckons he's done more than anybody <laughs> I, I'd agree he's, I would agree he's, with he's that. Just you there I think yeah, yeah we built this city a podcast about the Mancunians born bred and adopted that put the heart into modern Manchester the one thing that struck me this week is that the arena attack and you've just been in post then for a few days the thing that brought us together and often does as a city is music. And you've said the best response to the attack at the time was for us to come together. And, you know, we celebrated with music in Albert Square that night and then St Anne Square, um, Don't Look Back in Anger, and then the One Love Concert. That's the one thing that I felt that we were missing, we to go and actually join together in a place which we would naturally do. Everyone, you hear stories of even the IRA bomb when people weren't in the city, that they they felt compelled to come back to the city after the arena attack. People who weren't here came into the city. So Mancunians want to be in the city centre, don't they? They want they to, to pull together. And that's, that's a real challenge because I think when you feel like you've kind of metaphorically got your arms around each other or physically, that's when we feel strong. And that's why I felt that when Sasha told us on the podcast that he was going to launch United Restream GM, it was such an amazing idea. And having seen that every week, it's been as kind of a, well, it's a virtual hug, isn't it? In a way, it's like the music has brought the people together in the kitchens and doing a kitchen disco. I mean, you've been a big part of that. How's that felt? Well, it's a lovely way of put, putting it because it has felt a bit like a, a bit of an embrace, hasn't it? And, a, you know, kind of a shared moments uh, as we've all stood there with our drinks in, in the kitchen or whatever. But yeah, it's been brilliant to watch it. And um, it's fantastic to work with Sasha. He's, a, he's an incredible uh, person. Another person like Gary who embodies what Manchester is absolutely all about. And a fantastic team as well. My teams, people from the Great Manchester Combined Authority have been working on it. They've all done a, a tremendous job with it. And what a great thing that we just create this little window on Greater Manchester, you know, a window to the world where the world can look in at us and we can look out, broadcast back to them. I think it's been a, a fantastic thing. So, yeah, there's a there's a few surprises yet to come from uh, United We Stream. Um, so keep, keep tuning in because it's not just the enjoyment it's given us. It's given a sort of a message of hope to those venues. I mean, you talk about the city centre. They are the, the, the heart and soul of the city centre, not just the, the music venues, the pubs, the clubs, the places we all like to go. And I do like to go. I love to go out in the city centre. I go out all of the time. I'm, you know, I watch live music a lot and I'm missing it badly. I, the last, I saw the Cortinas at the Albert Hall um, in, what was it? Was it late February? I think it might have been. And um, yeah, to, it just seems like, a you know, world away but you know what, what are we missing here you know and all the festivals that we're not we're not gonna gonna see this this year but united we stream has kind of kept that community together hasn't it in a in a, in, mm. in a way and um i think it's been a wonderful thing that uh that, that sasha has has done and i thank everyone who's been on it and uh supported it and i have finally signed on the dotted line that we're going to have a um Mayor of Greater Manchester versus Mayor of Liverpool City Region, DJ Off, if that's the right word. Is it? Is there such a thing as a DJ Off? I don't know. What... Yeah, I'm sure we'll say there is for today. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. When's that? Yeah, I, it's going to be in June. It's going to be the last night of United We Stream. So, I, as I say, I've already said to him, he's only got one band, really, hasn't he? So, if I 
if I exclude the 60s for a minute from the, the playlist, then we're home and dry, I think. Uh, but, your, uh, son's a bit of, your son's a bit of a music buff, though, isn't he? He can help you out there if you've oh, uh, yes. the dad songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, He's been helping me through... Uh, through lockdown with a few uh, a few suggestions he was um with me at blue dot last year and um i had to drag him to watch new order at blue dot can you believe that the youth of today what is the Absolutely. matter with them is outrageous but he's now conceded that uh, power corruption and lies is one of his favorite albums. So, uh, <laughs> Amazing. i'm making some progress with the coming generation my, my um, band of the um lockdown i've been boring everyone to death with this is the slow readers club and if you're yeah. not into them, get into them because I think they're high quality. All of their albums are, you know, there's not a dud amongst them there. They're they're they're, they're top uh, top quality. So there you are, a free tip from the man. I've got to mention this. That did make me laugh. Sasha told me today that um, is it more than 11 million people have been entertained by United We Stream and more than 300,000 raised, which yeah. is incredible so far. What did make me laugh is on the first day that you couldn't get in through a technical hitch, and you said you, you, you couldn't get in in the olden days, and you couldn't get that's, in now either. That's very true. I was turned away from the hacienda at least <laughs> twice, and it made me really sad the other day because I saw a, a story in the MEN that the Britain's protection might be uh, at risk. So I would often end up in the Britain's protection, nursing a pint of bitter while all my mates were in the Hacienda. And then I had to wait because we'd get a coach back to Colchester, which is where I grew up. And um, yeah, I can remember those days very vividly. And I was always the, well, not always, I did get in, but uh, it was, it did happen. And I, I I used to think they were like a fashion police on the door. They didn't like the look of, <laughs> oh, you're not there. No, no. What were you wearing? <laughs> I know, it must have been some dodgy sort of uh, tracky or something. I don't know. We talk about relationships at Roland Dransel, purposeful relationships, about them being important. Obviously, Mancunis are passionate and vocal and they're demanding. So it's a kind of skill, I think. The way you build a relationship with a Mancunian, it takes time, but once it's established, it's there forever. Have you felt it a kind of a challenge to balance so many of those relationships across so many different walks of life in the city or across Greater Manchester? Yeah, a bit, because, you know, I like to um, be out and about and I like to talk to people and, you know, I, I try and that's how I like to do my job. You know, I'm, I don't like to be cut off and, and remote. So I do end up, you know, having conversations with loads of people across um, not just the, the city centre, but the 10 boroughs, really. Mm. But then I have pangs of guilt, like, oh, God, they texted me and I didn't get back to them. And you're probably thinking now that I didn't reply to half of your emails about something. <laughs> but I, inevitably, that happens a bit in my job just because of, you know, I don't have people that sift everything. I often do have a direct line with people. But it does sometimes mean that I don't always kind of spot the text or spot the message. And mm. I do have this sort of um, pang of guilt at times. Oh, God, next time they're going to be really off with me. But the great thing is they're never, you know, people, I, 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 I hope anyway, people can see the way I do the job. And I hope maybe some of the cynicism they would have about anybody coming out of Westminster to, to do what I'm doing is hopefully gone. And they can see that I'm, I'm, I'm not here just sort of biding my time, waiting for something different. No, I'm, I'm totally committed to this job. I don't know how long I'll do it because I don't know how long people will allow me to do it. But, um, you know, I, I definitely am giving it my all. And, um, you know, it's very draining, but fantastic. Yeah, I want to build. I'm trying to build a network of people who are all wanting the same thing, and yeah, I can feel it growing all of the time, and it's 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 wonderful to be part of it. I think at times like this as well, this is when you really realise um, how important those relationships are because they really kind of 
come to you at a time when you need them and you can be there for those people too. Well, you mentioned May 2017 and, you know, I just will say a, a quick thing about that because it was two weeks in for me and I'm, you know, we're approaching the, the third anniversary of it. So, you know, at this time of year, I kind of, you know, you start to think about, I'm thinking about it um, mm-hmm. a lot um, at the moment. And it's going to be hard, isn't it, for um, the families and the survivors because obviously the, the strange time in which this anniversary uh, lands. But, you know, I just remember that night vividly, as I'm sure everybody does. But, you know, for me, it was like newly in post, feeling a little overwhelmed as to what, you know, how we were going to get through this and what, what to do and what to say. And what. And I just remember going in, uh, in the very early hours, it would have been about three or four in the morning, into the office in Churchgate House and seeing a good number of people already there. And I'll never forget that, never forget that, because, you know, it's what you're saying, you know, People are there for you. You know, when I walked into civil service departments as a government minister, I always had the feeling that three quarters of the place was against me. You know, they were trying to stop you. Do, you know, when I walked into uh, the Greater Manchester Combined Authority, I had the sense that, of the complete opposite, that nine tenths of the place was kind of with you because they want, they were with the place and they were, you know, and it's such a different way to have to work. But then, you know, if I remember that time, you know, the way the city kind of jittery at first, but then throughout the course of that day, Tuesday the 23rd of May, slowly sort of came together. And that decision that uh, Sir Richard and I took to, to have that vigil, um, I'll, I'll never forget that because it allowed the, the place to sort of reassert itself, didn't it? You know, when Tony spoke to the crowd, it kind of allowed the, the sort of character of the people to, to reclaim its kind of voice. And uh, yeah, it, it, you know, I, and I'll never, ever, ever forget that. It was you know, a, a, an experience that will just forever remain with me, that watching him deliver that poem to the crowd. I could see it, I could feel the, the response from the crowd. You know, it was, it was, it was, you know, but it was kind of electrifying, wasn't it? Confidence was surging back through people. Yeah, I'll, I'll yeah. never, ever forget that. That was a moment in time, wasn't it? And I, I know so many people who weren't actually in the city for travel reasons or whatever, and they really feel that they've kind of missed such an important moment in the city. And it's one that made me on that day, you know, we're all in tears, but it made you just know that this is a place you wanted to be for the rest yeah. of your life because there's so, so much heart in it. And I thought I knew a lot about Manchester, but I learned a lot at that particular moment in time. And I learned a lot from Richard, actually, who who said to me, you know, look, We'll do a vigil, but no politicians. You know, this is about this is about the people, the public, and he, you know, he made the call for Tony to to speak, um, and I, you know, that was an inspired decision, wasn't it? Um, mm. You know, because we'd heard him at the, I think he'd been at the Chamber of Commerce dinner, Tony, you know, a week or two before, and he delivered that poem, and yeah, I mean, that was just such an incredible decision to 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 do that. But then, you know, you, the B and all of that, and you think, well, you know. It's how it's how the place is that it's the it's the the collective is always more important than the individual, isn't it? In in Manchester, mm-hmm. always, and um, yeah, that that's that that's something will live with me. And one of the abiding memories I've spoke to, spoken about this before was being in my office. You know, I think it was a couple of days later, the Wednesday or the Thursday of that week, and a box arrived on my desk, um, and it just had this massive cake in it with a B iced on the on the top, and it just had "Stay Strong, our kid." It still sets me off thinking about it because, yeah. In times like that, which must be incredibly draining for you, who do you lean on? Who do you have there to support you? Obviously, my wife, kids here, but my mum and dad always, you know, I, I, and my brothers, we keep it quite close in some ways. In that, 
you know, I'm not somebody who has like endless sort of allies and friends in politics. Um, so I, it's family or, you know, Steve Rotherham is a great friend of mine. But, you know, another challenges I've had in my political career, the biggest one I can think of was Hillsborough. And when I was culture secretary, invited to speak to the 20th anniversary service, um, you know, that was something that was agonised over in my mum's kitchen table um, for, you know, weeks. Because I was I was agonised about whether to go, you know, the, the private me wanted to go. The, per, the professional me saw all the problems of going. And um, uh, it was my, my younger brother who said to me in the end, he said, don't go for show. Go if you're going to do something for the families. And it was like, you know, that, that just gives you an insight to the kind of way we work as a, as a family. You know, we kind of, the more I've kind of got into politics, the more I work like that. You know, I don't do it through my advisors or focus groups. I do it there. And if, it, if they say it's right, that's what, that's what I do. If you're loving We Built This City, please could you take the time to leave a five-star review on your podcast platform? Thank you. It always feels like you've got Greater Manchester covered as a front man, so to speak. You don't always have an immediate answer, but you kind of say, don't worry, I've got this, I'll find out. Do you ever say that, don't worry, I've got it, when you really haven't got it and you don't know what the answer is? How do you feel? I, I do that all the time. I'm just, I'm just curious. <laughs> I kind of have instincts that are quite strong on things. I mean, so it annoys me sometimes when people call me like a weather vane or something as though I just sort of blow in them. And I don't actually, I mean, I, I have quite strong senses of what, you know, but I, I take a little time sometimes just to think about it from the different ways in which people will see it. And you know, I try and I try to be quite unifying in the way I do things. And I try not to be a sort of divisive politician. I mean, others, others do do that and that can give them more definition. But um, no, I, I try to, um, you know, I think even in the most difficult things, you've got to go back to what's true and what's right. And even if it's difficult, you still do it. So an example, we talk about uh, May 2017. Well, when I came into office, before I have to say the arena attack, we saw the Three Girls documentary on um, BBC. And I heard Maggie Oliver and others making allegations you know, about the way that had been investigated at the time. And I decided there and then that I would have an inquiry into it. Um, and I think what I've learned through life is that fate, even if things are difficult, face up to them immediately. I found in my life, you know, if you make a mistake and you know it in your heart, just say it, you know, just face it up to it and correct it. Or if you hear that something is wrong and you know it to be wrong, like I knew Hillsborough to be wrong, and I was applying the same test in this instance, if you just know it doesn't feel right and you need to do something, do it. That even if difficult stuff comes out of it, you're still on the right side for having faced up to it. And I, I, I know it's not always true, but that's how I generally will try and deal with issues, even if they're difficult, face up to the difficult bit of the issue. And mm. then you'll probably find it and gets easier in terms of how you might handle it later down the line. Too often in politics, the opposite happens, of course. You know, the, the instinct is to sort of push it away and... I, I found in my career that never serves you well, never, never. And it's probably true in professional life as well, isn't it? Face up to it, deal with it. And uh, you'll probably find that you'll be able to get your handle on it then when you come to to, to uh, address it. I was going to ask you which of our values from the Roland Johnson way resonated with you, but we have admit it, fix it, move on. You just said it. So permission yeah. to make mistakes and just hold your hand up and that we can learn from it. And often 
failure is uh, is on the way to success, isn't it? But just being honest and open and having integrity around those things. Yeah, I think it's absolutely right, Lisa. I think it's a good motto uh, for the for the company to to have in in the work that you do, and I and I think it's something that I try. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm perfect, but you know, I try to, to to live my life and do what I do in that way because actually, people forgive the mistake; they are less forgiving of the cover up of the mistake. Yeah. Which Mancunians have inspired you? I talked about Gary, and I and, and I and I mean that. Um, even though he didn't half give me a hard time when I said I was going to stand as a scouter. <laughs> so uh, if I look to the ones, I mean, I did idolise Morrissey at the time, I'll be honest, in the mid-80s. And I nearly met him once because he asked to interview me once, strangely, um, going back about 20, 10 years ago when I was an MP. And we were going to have this sort of interview set up by, and it fell, I, I can't remember the reason, and it, and it fell through. And I was going to say to him that, I felt he did something for our generation that was kind of quite transforming, really, in that, you know, here we were in a terrible time in the 1980s, but he was kind of giving out this message that, you know, we can be better, we are the best, we can be, you know, it was like, I don't know, it just spoke to a sense of ambition and and sort of um, aiming high and, you know, not being, you know, not being done down and being who you want to be and all, all, all of that. Uh, but then he went dra- dramatically... <laughs> Wrong. So I kind of find I, I don't know. I can't be the only person who just feels completely um, conflicted about. <laughs> so I, it's great when Johnny Marr plays him now. He can re- reclaim the songs, but but I, you can't forget the effect that Morrissey had on people in that era. I think it was massive, to be honest with you. On Morrissey, the last gig he did at the arena, it must be the first time that Mancunian could not buy meat pie in the city centre. <laughs> <laughs> there were no meat products in the arena. <laughs> I think at that gig he had a go at me from the stage as well that, that night. He said, yeah. Yeah, in the same way that Gary did. Isn't it? He went, we're going to have a scouser as mayor of Manchester. What's the world coming to? He said, yeah, yeah, something like, something like that. So I lived through that. But then when the Stone Roses came along, for me, they embodied it all, really. Everything was really sort of quintessential Manchester, even though Ian's from Warrington or somewhere near Warrington. Um, <laughs> but for me, the, where, the, where the Smiths were, where you learned, they were a bit sneering and I'm a bit better than you. You know, that, that Smiths fans were a bit like that when they were taught to look down on anybody who liked sort of mm. chart music or something like that. The yeah. Stone Roses felt to me to be like every man band, you know, because when you went, I did go and see them, as I constantly remind people, at the Empress Ballroom in Blackpool. And it was like, it wasn't the same as a Smiths gig. It was everybody. And it was inclusive. And it was like more celebratory. And, you know, for, everyone was there together and no one was judging anybody. You know, I, I just, for me, that was like the, the pinnacle of it, really. And I, you know, Ian, I would say, in terms of um, Mancunian Idol, I would, I would say he's absolutely at the top of the top of the tree. I bumped into him in a garden centre near Lim, and I just thought, I don't, I, I don't want to see you in here. It doesn't fit your image at all. <laughs> so Roland Dransfield uh, has the Roland Dransfield way, and one of our values is to leave Roland Dransfield in a better place. I've had the business 24 years. We've had some amazing people that have worked in that team and helped us build you know, a great business with so many friends in the city. And we just say, come in, we'll look after you and just leave us in a better place than when you arrived. And, and pretty much most people have done that. So that's really important to me. So everyone leaves a legacy. So I'm just interested in what legacy you want to leave Manchester. Well, obviously on homelessness, I, I want there to be no need for anyone to sleep rough. And that would be something quite big uh, if we could 
uh, make that happen. But more than that, I, I guess if I could just uh, say something about the future of the city and, and its young people, because I'm always struck by the level of talent and, you know, just sheer sort of creativity that there, there is amongst uh, young people across, across our 10 boroughs. See, I always remember graduating in 1991 uh, from university and I went to Cambridge. I went to a Catholic comprehensive, but I, I luckily got to do English at, at Cambridge, but I didn't want to live down south and I came back and I searched and searched and searched for a job in the media in Manchester. And in the end, as I think I said before, became a, a reporter unpaid on the Middleton Guardian. And in the end, I, I gave up and went to London because I couldn't couldn't find anything else. And that experience really kind of like, you know, honestly, I wanted to come to the Northwest. I didn't want to live in London and I kind of felt I had to go. So now I look at Manchester today and I look at the skyscrapers and I look at Media City and I look at the Etihad and everything around it that's taking shape. And I just look at all of it and I think, you know what? Young people now may not have to leave this place to, to have the highest ambitions in, in life, but we did have to do that uh, years ago. But when I also look at it and I look at the, the skyscrapers and I, and I think of kids growing up in Openshaw or Harper Hay or, you know, Moston or somewhere, they probably look at them and think, well, that's not that world is not for me. You know, I think this is where we've hit in our development. We've brought a lot of people in to work here, but actually kids living here probably don't think yet that this stuff that's kind of been built is is stuff for them or or places where they could work and i think if i've got a kind of a legacy to leave it's about saying you can have the highest ambitions in this city because of the organizations that that are here now and you, you can walk into those buildings and those places and you can achieve whatever you want to achieve in life and that I think is not yet where we are. I don't think, if I'm honest, you know that that talent that we have and our own young people still is sort of not empowered to go and sort of say, yeah, I can work for the Bank of New York or I can go and work at the BBC. Obviously, it's still a lot of people who were brought here to do those jobs, and I feel that that for me is 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 kind of something I'm really absolutely passionate about, you know. And it does go back to that time when I graduated because. You know, my parents didn't have any connections, if you like, in the middle class world. And I remember people I was at uni with sort of walking into jobs at The Guardian and at The Times and the BBC. And I was like, how does, how does that work? You know, how, how, how does that happen? And it was clear because of the way Brit British society works is that if you, you know, you're connected in a connected family, you're fine. But if, if you're one of those kids without connections, as I used to, to say, you're, you're not fine. And you'll find it really tough to break into those worlds. So I've kind of been on a bit of a mission about this all through my life. I hate the idea of unpaid internships. And, and, and that's why I've created this system in Greater Manchester called GMAX, which is all about connecting every young person in Greater Manchester to opportunity and then making that open application and, you know, and supporting them properly with the free bus travel to get to those opportunities. See, this is what I'm trying to build, really, you know, a system that kind of completely opens up opportunity to people, whatever their background and it's a really long answer, Lisa, but it's actually, if, if you strip everything back, it's what I'm passionate about, that kids from the northwest of England should have no limits on what they can achieve. And sadly, they have had limits placed upon them because of the class system of our country and the way things work and the sound of your voice and the accent. And 
I went to Cambridge and I, you know, I spent a year like in awe of these people who were so confident that they just spoke out all these opinions. And I, it took me a year to work out they were talking absolute rubbish. But for, for that year, it was like quite impressive. And I kind of struggled. But it's that's what I've kind of felt all my life. And I, I've worked out that they do it just because they're lucky and they've had connections. And, and there's so much more talent out there that never gets to walk into those rooms, that never gets to you know, stand on those stages or go on those screens. And yeah, I, I kind of tried to um, promote those policies in Westminster and didn't get very far. But it's why I want this to be a city that is absolutely roots out talent and brings it through and, you know, utterly regardless of your background, your race, your gender, your um, sexuality. You know, that's what I'm trying to, to create. If you want to know how to build a community that dances on tables, you can find out right here on the We Built the City podcast. So, Andy, just to finish, we've got a few quick fire Manchester questions. Oh, are you worrying me now, Lisa? Right. So we normally do United or City, but obviously we're not going there. So um, what is your favourite building in Manchester? The Midland Hotel. Why? I don't know. I just love it. It just mm. looks so grand and mm. uh, timeless. and Timeless. Impressive. Yeah. And best pub or club now and then? Oh, God. That is, that is a tough one because I've been to so many. I am a pub person. Um there used to be a place called Tommy Ducks. Do you remember that place? Do you remember Tommy to Ducks, up. yeah. I used to go a lot <laughs> in the old days. Um, I like the temple these days. You know, it's right next door to my office. So I do find that I, that hole in my neighborhood, I do sort of fall down it quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bad elbow reference on that. Um, what do you order at the chippy? I get in trouble for being a kind of professional northerner. So you're tempting me down that path again, Lisa. <laughs> Uh, oh, I'll have to answer, I suppose. Well, maybe chips, peas, and gravy, probably. <laughs> Most people, and I can't believe this, they said pudding and chips. And I, every week ago, I'm going to try that, and I've not, still not tried it. Do you know yes. what that's called where I live? In the, Is it Babby's Head? Yed. They call it Babby's Head. Babby's Yed. Yeah, I've yeah. heard that. Because that's when you got them. We, when we were in Salford, you had to like smack the top of the head and crack the baby's head. Um, Favourite Manchester expression? Arkid. Oh, got to be our kid. And what do you miss most about Manchester in lockdown? Oh, probably the temple and the Albert Hall, I guess. Oh, Rudy's. <laughs> Rudy. I, I, I love Rudy's. Do you, yeah. I don't know if people know that, but uh, yeah. Rudy's Pizza began in Ancoats, now on Peter Street. Yeah, I'm, I'm all, it's just the queues are mad, aren't they? But I do, <laughs> I do love, I, I am missing Rudy's. I'll, I'll be absolutely honest with you. Imagine the queues of social distancing. You're never going to oh, get in. Never going to get in Rudy's for about <laughs> five years. <now. laughs> absolutely. Andy, thank you so much. And I can feel that your passion for Manchester is as strong as ever. It's stronger than ever, actually. We built this city, Lisa, but we're going to have to rebuild this city now, aren't we? Because it is a bit of a rebuilding job, isn't it? You yeah. know, it's going to be a bit of a tough... Uh, tough road ahead but if everyone does kind of keep true to the to the faith you know and thinks about yeah how do we get back and be successful again but how do we then give back you know I, I think we can build back better definitely and I do think it can define us because yeah we've got more going for us than than anywhere and uh, it could be a moment where we really put the city properly on the on the global map yeah I'm with you I think if anyone can do it we can do it Definitely. <laughs> Thanks so much, Andy. 
Andy Burnham has helped build this city by always speaking as he finds, by leaning into challenges, and he's going to help Manchester build back better. I wanted to mark the anniversary of the arena attack and remember those we lost and the survivors and their families. Tony Walsh has kindly allowed us to play the poem he read at the vigil in Albert Square that united us as Mancunians the day after the attack. This is the place. And this is the place where our folks came to work, where they struggled in puddles, they hurt in the dirt, and they built us a city. They built us these towns, and they coughed on the cobbles to the deafening sound of the steaming machines and the screaming of slaves. They were scheming for greatness. They dreamed to their graves, and they left us a spirit. They left us a vibe that Mancunian way to survive and to thrive and to work and to build and to connect and create and greater Manchester's greatness is keeping it great and so this is the place now with kids of our own some are born here some drawn here but we all call it home and they've covered the cobbles but they'll never defeat all the dreamers and schemers who still team through these streets because this is a place that has been through some hard times Oppressions, recessions, depressions and dark times. But we keep fighting back with greater Manchester spirit, northern grit, northern wit and greater Manchester lyrics and these hard times again. And there's hard times again. There's hard times again in these streets of our city. But we won't take defeat. And we don't want your pity because this is the place where we stand strong together with a smile on our face, Mancunians forever. Because this is the place in our hearts, in our homes. Because this is the place that's a part of our bones. Because Manchester gives us such strength from the fact that this... is the place... We should give something back. Always remember. Never forget. Forever Manchester. Choose love, Manchester. Thank you. This podcast is about the people who put the heart into modern Manchester. And in the next episode, released on Thursday, you're going to meet the woman who brought something completely new to Manchester's bar scene when she opened Neighbourhood and Menagerie. It's Karina Jadav. And I knew it had to be different. I knew everybody was watching to see if I would fail. So I thought, well, if I'm going to do it, I've got to go in with a bang, put myself fully out there and see what happens. This is a podcast from Roland Dransville PR. Our mission is to build purposeful relationships in all we do. If you do want to talk to us, give us a call on the same number we've had for 23 years, 0161 236 1122.